Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Welcome to the TechCrunch Podcast, where you'll hear everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. Each week, we'll go in-depth on two or three of the week's top stories from in and around the startup ecosystem. And I'll be joined by the TechCrunch writers who covered them. They'll tell us why the stories are so important and what they think the most important takeaways are for you, our listener. Whether you're just interested in tech or that's where you make your living. But before we talk with our writers, here are some of the biggest stories of the week. The big news this week, there was the tragic Buffalo shooting. Our reporter, Taylor Hatmaker, who we will be talking to later on this episode about some very different news, has covered the mass shooting that occurred in Buffalo. Before the shooter, Peyton Gendron, opened fire on a top supermarket, specifically chosen to ensure he could kill the most black people possible, he detailed his plan in a public diary posted on a Discord server. In this server, he talked about his plan in detail, as well as stating that he was radicalized on 4chan. He live-streamed the shooting that killed 10 people, and both Twitter and Facebook had issues containing the footage. So check out our coverage of what went wrong there and the measures that some of these companies are trying to take to make sure that doesn't happen, though those efforts seem to continue to fail. In other news, Elon is again just being an awful person on Twitter. Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal posted a thread detailing why Twitter can't get an exact number of bots on the site because of the complicated nature of fake accounts. Elon responded with a poop emoji. Musk has said in the past that getting rid of bots on the site and free speech are two of his main reasons for buying the platform. The following day, Elon Musk doubled down on his previous tweets, basically saying that if Twitter CEO Parag Agarwal is unable to back up claims that the number of spam and or fake accounts is around 5% as the company claims, Musk's deal to acquire Twitter will not move forward. It would be a shame, really, after we've devoted so much effort in following the story for it to not to go through, but I think a lot of people might be happy with that also. There's a lot more about that on the site from Devin, Natasha Lomas, and Amanda. There's other Elon news as well. He's been accused of sexual harassment and inappropriate behavior towards a flight attendant on a SpaceX private jet. Those allegations are developing still, and we're following that story and trying to corroborate. Also, in that report, there is a claim that SpaceX did pay out a settlement of $250,000, which, of course, is not an admission of guilt, but... It does indicate that they were worried about it. So we'll be following that, and you can read all about it on TechCrunch as the story develops. So YC advises founders to plan for the worst amid the market teardown. In a very candid newsletter to their community of founders, YC warned them to batten down the hatches and make their goal to get to default alive. This is basically worst-case scenario talk from YC. And they suggested that startups cut their expenses and focus on extending their runways within the next 30 days. Those who don't have the runway in the bank, YC is advising, should consider raising money now. If your plan is to raise money in the next 6 to 12 months, you might be raising at the peak of the downturn, YC said in the blog post. Remember that your chances of success are extremely low even if your company is doing well. We recommend you change your plan, they wrote. Basically, their advice had mounted to, even if you think you're doing great, you should assume that you're not going to do great, and you should go out there and get the money you need in the worst case scenario. It's a pretty harsh advice, but YC has a lot of experience guiding companies through ups and downs in the market. You can read more in Manish Singh's piece up on the site. 
In space news, Boeing had a redo of their orbital flight test mission. This is a key mission in their program to gain certification to transport human astronauts on behalf of NASA. You may know that SpaceX already does this. Boeing was supposed to be the second provider for that, and they were supposed to deliver around the same time. But they've had a few missteps, and they haven't been able to get this orbital flight test going. The orbital flight test doesn't actually have anybody on board. It's a test of the system without anybody there. The fully automated aircraft launch, docking with the space station, and return and landing. This one, if it goes well, will lead into the crewed test flight, which after that, they'll be certified if that goes to plan. There were a few hiccups in this, but so far it seems to be going well. No showstoppers as there has been previously. You can read more about that on the site from Aria and Devin. Now on to our interviews with writers. This week we talked to Taylor Hatmaker about UFOs and Kirsten Kortisek about mobility. So let's get into it. Hi, Taylor. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you've got a great story on TechCrunch. Can you give us a brief explainer of what exactly is going on here? Sure. Yesterday in the U.S., the House Intelligence Committee held a hearing, its first hearing in more than 50 years on UFOs. But we're not calling them that anymore. Don't call them UFOs. Okay. But wait, they had one before? That was my first reaction when I read this. I was like, wait, first in 50 years? Yes, they did. The last one was in 1966. And weirdly, it was run by Gerald Ford, which is very confusing. So I guess like in the mid 60s, there was like a brief period where UFOs had a little bit less stigma. And then by the end of the 60s, they were like, no, this is a joke. This is over. And they shut it all down. (laughs) (laughs) And then the second part of that that I can't just leave alone is they're gotten rid of the term UFOs. That's no longer the accepted technical term. I mean, as true believers, I think we can use whatever term is in our hearts. Right. Um, You know, but now the government, at least in the U.S., and, you know, a lot of folks trying to legitimize the field of study are calling UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Which honestly is pretty much just synonymous. It's with a UFOs. lateral move. <laughs> it is a lateral move. I agree. This is obviously very interesting, but what drew you to it specifically? Why did you see this and think, you know what, this needs to be a TechCrunch story? Oh, I love this stuff. This is this is just like on my alley. I was like, I. It was more like it's the afternoon, and I think I can get away with making this a TechCrunch story. <laughs> That's what happened. I love your honesty, and that's yeah. part of what makes TechCrunch so valuable, is that we encourage that kind of thing, and we want people to get away with as much as they possibly can. Well, I think, website. you know, I do think most of our readers would be interested in this topic. For sure. And I do cover, like, the government and defense tech some, and, like, arguably, this is a defense issue. And, you know, there's, like, a big element of technology here, because it is unexplained technology that we're talking about, essentially, assuming yeah. it's not you know, other unexplainable visual phenomena or whatever else. Yeah. So get into that a bit. Like when you wrote about this, you're talking about their, you know, the subcommittee chair, Andre Carson said they're real and need to be more deeply researched. And I think that might even come as a shock kind of immediately to some people, like the admission that they're real. But when I thought about it more, it's actually not controversial because it's like, yes, of course, the phenomenon are real, right? Is that kind of what the point they were making? Yeah, I think the last few years, we've seen this interesting thing happen in the US government. And, you know, I don't know if this is reflected around the world or not. But, you know, in the US, basically, military pilots are seeing this stuff. 
Yeah. So you can either like record data around that and get them to bring reports to you about that and describe what they're seeing to you. Or you can stigmatize it and just be like, this is a joke. We don't even want to talk about it. So I think at some point, you know, the federal government was like, hey, we think we can't explain some of this. Like some of it is just unexplained and remains unexplained. And so they're like, we should be collecting data about this. And to do that, we're also going to have to destigmatize it. Right. Yeah. It's like if you just ignore it, it kind of is like, well, then nothing can be done from it. Right. And that seems like a huge risk because, yeah, like you, I think you get to it later. Maybe it could be explained by just visual phenomenon. And you, you referenced that earlier, but like better to know than just assume and kind of like stick your head in the sand and then be like, well, I guess it's fine. Is that kind of the vibe that they're going for? Yeah. I mean, pretty much like it's, it's interesting because, you know, now they're, they have like, you know, a protocol in place. They're encouraging pilots across the military to come forward, but the stuff they're seeing, because it usually is pilots, you know, pilots over the Pacific ocean, wherever they are. And sometimes even over military bases in U S military airspace, which is interesting. So yeah, I think they're basically like you guys, they know people are talking about this. They know people are seeing stuff and they just want more of that information coming forward. And it's working so far. I mean, last year, the Pentagon put out a report and it was basically like, hey, we have like 144 things we've seen that we can't explain that, you know, pilots, people in the military have come to us and reported. And less than a year later, that number is up to 400 reports. Wow. So that's obviously happening. And it's not that it's happening more necessarily. I think it's that people are feeling like they won't be, you know, laughed out of the room if they come to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the thing where if I saw something, I would think like, I'm probably just going to keep this to myself. Like there's no real strong motivation to be like, guess what? I saw something in the sky and I have no idea what it was. If otherwise you're feeling like, I'm in a pretty good place and I don't want people to question that, right? Yeah, especially in the military. I mean, you know, it's such like a no-nonsense, like chain of command kind of place. And you're like, oh, who do I talk to about? I just hallucinated like a triangle in the sky at night. You know, where do I report (laughs) that? Like some of these things are, even after looking into them with the, you know, array of sensors and technology that U.S. government has, they still can't explain them, which is fascinating, I think. Yeah. Now, what about the downsides? Because I think like when you think about why they stopped talking about this openly, why they made a lot of this stuff confidential or whatever, you can see why. Like a part of it is to avoid mass hysteria, I guess, or avoid people developing these conspiracy theories and becoming like really sort of pathological adherents of them. So did they address any of that in the hearing? That's a good question. They did talk about the stigma a bit, you know, and I think even one of the Pentagon officials who was testifying at the hearing admitted that he's like a sci-fi nerd. He's like gone to conventions and stuff. He didn't go so far as saying he's like a UFO person, but you know, he's been to the meetups. (laughs) I do think that the government is like, okay, being secretive about this is like obviously not working. Like people are obsessed with this stuff. I'm obsessed of this stuff. It's great. It's fascinating. You know, like, why would you not want to learn about it? And anytime the government is like, oh, no, that's not real. We, you know, or we can't disclose anything about that topic. Even if we had something to say, people are just going to double down. Like that hasn't worked to quell interest. No, it stokes interest, right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Drives people to the history channel where we learn the real facts about aliens. (laughs) Yeah, the stuff the government won't tell you. But I think like what's interesting to me about this is that there's another thing that we do here on this podcast, which is ask, what is the takeaway? Like, what is the impact for just everyday readers? And then also specifically for startups and investors. And initially I was like, 
does that question even apply in this case? But I think it really does. But I'm curious kind of what your take about that is. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I do think it, it, that was also my reaction at first. And I was like, you know, it is relevant to our readers yeah. for a yeah. variety of reasons, really. I mean, one, again, is like the national defense interest. Like, you know, the government wouldn't be talking about this at all if it wasn't a defense concern. And they repeated that again and again during the hearing that this is a legitimate concern um, for, you know, defense, which arguably is the thing the U.S. government cares about more than anything by an order of magnitude. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, at least as displayed by their budget allotments. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. We will throw money at that. And now we are throwing money at unexplained phenomena, which is great. Not a lot of money. They're just making reports. Right. But I mean, ultimately, you know, it is a technology question. So like the U.S. government has this like little schema of like possible explanations for this stuff, you know, and one of them is like atmospheric phenomena or whatever. And, you know, another one is something along the lines of adversaries with more advanced technology than we have, which is pretty interesting, too. Yes. You know, so there is a possibility that it's technology, hypersonic technology that we aren't even aware exists, at least here in the U.S. and probably in the countries where they might be developing that. And again, that is a long shot theory. The government considers that a long shot. But, you know, it's not ruled out. They can't really rule anything out. They can't rule it out and they can't afford to rule it out also. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the stakes of that are such that especially as you pointed out, like that is one of their chief concern as as displayed by dollar value. Right. So like they can't afford to be like assume that's not something that could be a threat and and treat it that way but it also does seem like it's something that at least if you're in the defense industry because i work a lot with the aerospace companies and almost all of them have a defense angle even Mm -hmm. if it's not their main angle right but it seems like something they should be aware of and tracking even if there's like no immediate action to be taken in terms of shifting your business do you you agree with that yeah i mean if only out of interest i mean you know it's it's relevant these are things they are moving at high speeds and they are in the sky and you know that's like that's big business for a lot of tech startups that are doing stuff like you know unmanned aerial technology and all of that i think that this stuff is out there you know we don't know if it's super advanced gadgets that someone is running, you know, to spy on the American government or whatever. But ultimately, it is like kind of a technology question. Even if that technology answer is like, oh, my camera malfunctioned because the light refracted weird because it was through night vision, which sometimes explains some of this. You know, it's there's like a lot of different technology questions kind of intersecting here. Yeah. I mean, even if they just discover that it's all related to like a common like physics visible light phenomenon or whatever yeah. that could have big implications for how we develop optics in the future right so. totally that's still interesting also there's like the big sensor component like this is something interesting from the hearing yesterday is that the two pentagon officials who were testifying were super secretive anytime they started talking about sensors so like you know one of the representatives was like you know was this detected by multiple sensors can you describe what that was like hmm. you know what kind of sensors detected it how they detected it and the, the pentagon officials were like no way we cannot talk about that at all like the sensor stuff was very very sensitive and they were oh. like, we'll talk about it in the classified portion of the hearing that's going to follow the public hearing. So that's kind right. of interesting, too. Oh, so there's definitely some, like, un- unreleased technology or so not public technology at play here that they don't want to just kind of reveal to potential enemies or allies, I guess. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, of course, because they were like, that's in the classified portion of the hearing. Like, everyone who watched the hearing was like, oh, I absolutely have to learn yeah. everything I possibly can about that topic now. Yeah, well, just like before when they used to deny that they existed, right? Exactly. And now they're like, we are denying these really advanced sensors we have. You know, somebody asked a question about like underwater sensors or something. And then they got really kind of skittish, which is fascinating. So yeah, Yeah. the U.S. government has a a lot of money and it puts most of that money for its military. And if anybody has advanced technology that we don't know about, it's probably the U.S. military. So I guess just one last question is, do you believe, Taylor? Not not in UFOs. We all believe in UFOs. We've we've agreed established that UAPs, I should say. But do you believe that they're aliens? Oh yeah, 
Absolutely. Okay. I mean, Good. even from like a statistical perspective, I mean, I'm a sci-fi person. I love this stuff. I've always loved this stuff. I'm an X-Files person. Like I like the science part. I like the not science part. I like all of it. Yeah. Hey, I'm right there with you. And I'm just glad that the U.S. government is finally legitimizing our passion. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. All right. Thanks. Bye, Taylor. Bye. Hi, Kirsten. Hey, Daryl. So we're at the event that just concluded. Yeah, we're sitting in a nondescript room mm-hmm. that's soundless, so we can record the podcast. Yeah. But and it was a great event, TechCrunch Sessions Mobility 2022. Now there's quite a bit of news at this event, so I just wanted to talk through some of the highlights from your perspective of the news that came out of this. What do you think? You don't have to rank them, but what's what's one thing that was super interesting to you here? Well, this year we just, you know, we came back from two years of doing virtual. So we actually got to see things and like touch products. (laughs) So for the first time ever, we had a bunch of product reveals, which was pretty cool. To me, the big two highlights were Zooks, which had revealed their vehicle virtually like in December 2020 and no one's laid eyes on it. This Mm -hmm. is the custom built RoboTaxi. We finally got to see it. People were like surrounding it all the time. They were swarming it. I had to keep reminding them to get away from it and pay attention to the rest of the sessions, which was kind of fun. Right, right. Yes. The product was actually placed to the side of the panel. And so there was a little bit of distraction. And then, of course, we had Jesse Levinson, who's the co-founder and CTO of Zooks, who you interviewed. And uh, but it was really cool. We were able to like I was able to sit in it, see it, touch it. We haven't seen it on the road. So. To me, that was a highlight just because we got to finally see something that we've only seen like basically in video format. Yeah. And it was interesting that there was such a lag because I was thinking, I was like, wait, I remember this. But yeah, nobody had seen it in the metal, I suppose would be the expression or the carbon carbon fiber. It was like, you know, and and their their photo qual their photos were like so good. They almost like look like renderings because they're studio shots. Yeah, Yeah. It's so different in person. It is. And what was really fascinating is, is that we had a bunch of other robo, you know, I would say autonomous vehicle technology developers. So like Waymo, Aurora, a bunch of these people. And they all wanted to see the Zooks vehicle. Yes, they did. Everybody was asking me about it backstage. It was definitely a highlight. I mean, they've been working on it since how long? 2014 or something like that? It's been a long time, right? I mean, since they were in stealth mode, right? Yeah. Um, And then I think that it was Bloomberg that... Ashley Vance or something who had that very first story. And at that time, it was all about the concept of like this bi-directional vehicle and we didn't see the final, you know, format. But it's pretty slick. There's, here's an interesting little side detail. So I sat in it and I was asked by another competitor, what were the seats like? Right. We had the doors closed. And I was like, well. that question a lot too. Yeah. And I was like, well, they were firm, but not too squishy. And this person said, you know, that's one of the things we've really struggled with too. And oh. I'll let I'll let listeners determine like what other AV company is potentially someday gonna do a custom built vehicle and you can figure it out. But right. but they were like, Yeah, that's actually hard. Like, how do you make something that is can be totally used and abused, but doesn't like feel weirdly like you could just hose it down? Yes. But you can hose it down. That's the crucial thing. Right. But it doesn't said. feel like antiseptic and sort of like without feeling. Yeah. It doesn't feel like completely utilitarian. It's like, it's not a like totally new problem, right? Like it's a similar problem faced by public transit agencies. Yeah, Go to the ride the L in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I did think they struck a good balance and I had the same kind of answer as you. I was like, well, it's got a little give, but it's supportive. Yeah. Yeah. 
You're not sitting on like a metal sheet. Yeah. You yeah. know. But what was your other experience of it? Like, was there anything else about the seeing the thing in person that stood out to you about the vehicle that you hadn't particularly thought about before, maybe? Um, well, it's not just Zooks. It's like any company that's developing these custom built vehicles. I mean, it's very slick. The finished product looks like the door is open. I always wonder about things like that's a motor that can break. I wonder what the redundancy is, right. you know? But the big thing is, is that you're basically like in a little train car. Yep. It's kind of feeling. And I'm thinking about shared rides and I'm thinking like, okay, I'm in San Francisco and I'm like going to hail this ride. And I've been at a bar and I'm by myself and like three other strangers come in. Yeah. Maybe yeah. they're all men. Like, how do I feel about that? Right. I, you know, that's true. There's no dividers it's, and it's like you have space, but it's fairly close quarters. Yeah. It's like when you're on a train, if you can picture this and oftentimes in a train car, they're side by side, side by side, but then every now and then there's the staggered ones where you can sit as a foursome yeah, face and each face other. each other. Yeah. And you avoid like the playing unless it's the last place or you actually are a foursome. Right. right exactly. Yeah. So for, if you're with like two or three people, it's like, I think it's a great vehicle, mm -hmm. but if you're one and then like someone else comes in, you're kind of like, Hey, yeah, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, Kind of a problem that is faced now with shared ride modalities, right? right? Like Uber Pool is also super sketchy and weird, depending on the situation. Which is why circumstances. not a lot of people. Well, certainly during COVID, no one's using it, right? Yeah. So, so I I don't think that that's a Zook's problem. I think it's like an industry problem. Yeah. So, how do you do that? Do you do these like weird dividers that can pop up? We won't know until they actually are on the streets, and they they'll probably figure it out. Like, yeah. what's the use case? Yeah. Because the goal is shared rides. Because if we just have like a million. Robotaxis where everyone's one person in there, that actually does not solve the problem. That doesn't just solve adds, congestion problem. No, yeah. it does not. Yeah. And that's what Uber and the promise of Uber and Lyft was, was that ride hailing was going to solve the traffic congestion problem. And the research, you know, now early research shows that actually it added to the traffic congestion problem. So yeah. the vehicle itself was very cool and they had a really good finishing touches. They had, you know, I think all the amenities you'd need but without like going overboard. You know, it's not like the... Mercedes interior yeah. where, you know, everything is there, but you know, you have your couple, your basic cup holder, you have your basic, you know, like, I think there's a plug-in for. There's a great plug-in, 60 watts of power, powers a MacBook, like full operation. So it's really good for, for commuters. Right? Yeah. yeah. So that it's felt like a utilitarian tool that had some nice touches to it, but wasn't too, too overboard. Yeah. So let's like, I want to compare and contrast this to the other one you mentioned, which is the Arrival vehicle. Yeah, so Arrival, totally different use case, right? Yeah. And very interesting because Arrival is this this EV company. It's a SPAC, mm -hmm. which, you know, always raises an eyebrow a little bit now. Just makes you look a little closer, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. There's good SPACs and bad SPACs. But um, Arrival, to me, is a very interesting company. And the premise is, is that using from the ground up, except for maybe the seats and a couple and the braking system and the airbags, everything components, all the composite material that actually makes the vehicle itself. So they don't do like, they don't use metal. There's no yeah. like, you know, so it's all composite material. Because of that, they don't have to use paint, which is incredibly toxic. It's really terrible to work with. It's environmentally problematic and it's incredibly expensive to have a paint shop. Yeah. Um, so they skip all that. those are like essentially dust-free, airtight rooms or something like there's yeah, a lot there's, that goes into there's it, a right? lot of toxic fumes from it it's phlegm. it's it's a problem it's a very very big cost for automakers yeah. so they can skip all of that and so they have these composite materials that they make that have past certification crash tests and they can you know basically instead of the traditional stamping that you would see in in a factory they make these vehicles they make 
also most of the components and the software. Mm -hmm. And so the idea with Arrival is they've made a bus that just received certification in a van, which was also at our event. It's like a delivery van, electric. But this one is a project that they're working on for Uber just in the UK. Yep. Which makes sense because the regulatory situation there is that the city centers in London, for example, you can only have zero emission vehicles Mm -hmm. soon. So this is an electric vehicle. It sort of is like the size of a Prius, I would say, maybe slightly smaller, not quite as long. We just saw it in its wrapped form. So not the final product. It's a prototype. But the idea is that... So that just means like it's like essentially camo outside. Yeah, that's why it had like the weird, you know, flashing of like red and gray. You know, it's meant to confuse the eye. otherwise, the shape is... The shape is there. You know, you could see some probably in prototype form, like maybe the headlight shape might change a little bit. But generally, it is sort of a little bit smaller than a Prius, a bit of a hatchback type of feeling. Of course, right side drive because it was Uber. And then... Interestingly, very similar to a Tesla Model 3, almost all of the controls are on a screen. Mm -hmm. But the idea there, they said, was to strip away, you know, the classic Uber driver needs a um, holder for their phone and all this stuff. Yeah, and they often have multiple holders in there. Right, it's a mess. So the idea was to really streamline it. Again, this was a vehicle designed specifically for Uber drivers. Uber drivers can buy or subscribe to these through, they actually made an announcement on stage. They have a new company they're working with called Breve, which I'm not familiar with, but they have an agreement to do it, uh, work with them. They can buy them from Arrival or through Uber driver program. Mm -hmm. The idea being these are electric and that they're, he would not tell me the price. Oh, yeah. Avinash Rugabar, who's the president of Arrival, but got him kind of. In the ballpark or? Below a Prius price. Okay. Okay. So good to know. Because he was like between an internal combustion engine and, and I'm like, well, that's. Yeah. What are we talking about? Yeah. So that was interesting. You, what were your thoughts on that? On the vehicle? I mean, it's, it's not a exciting vehicle by any means right but it's I think a tool right it's a tool exactly yeah. yeah and it reminded me kind of of like postal delivery vehicles or other purpose-built commercial cars or which, like the old yellow taxi cabs that we used to have yes yeah but i mean like there used to be more purpose-built cabs and then they kind of like were like well, well let's just use this that's roughly equivalent like mm-hmm. sedan or whatever one example that comes to mind is toyota very famously made their line i forget what they're called but they're like they have like the driver has a mechanical hinge that he pulls under the door and it opens the back right passenger door. So you can have like white glove service and they would very notably wear like actual white gloves and stuff, right? And it was a whole classy deal. But this was like very much like, yeah, okay, it looks like a mail van, but translated to like, it's analogous to a mail van. It doesn't look like one, but it's analogous to one in that it's like a purpose-built vehicle for this one specific thing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's weird to me to like do that when you're approaching an industry that was essentially built out of like out of your spare time and with the resources that you have and don't use, right. you can make this extra sort of money. He, right? He did say something interesting there though, where he said, you know, just in passing, as I'm thinking about it now, he said, you know, some of these drivers have two or three vehicles. Yeah. So it's actually becoming these little enterprises. And that's where the big discussion or it came up repeatedly was like total cost of ownership which I always kind of raise an eyebrow to because there's still an upfront cost. And a lot of EV companies, you know, Tesla's famous for doing this. It's like the total cost of ownership is lower than owning a 
internal combustion engine vehicle. And that's very true. But if that vehicle EV is very expensive, the return on investment takes much longer. Yeah. And at that point, is the vehicle depreciating? Now, it sounds like they have like software and it's updatable. So that kind of diffuses some of that issue. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's a very utilitarian tool. So it's not something that you're going to get like super excited about. Right. But there is, I think, a demographic that would find it exciting if they can really, truly unlock savings. So that to me is going to be a key. What's the price? And also if these subscription services companies that are working with them, what kind of deal are they giving yeah. these drivers? Because yeah. that can get a little shady. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We've seen examples of it. I'm we've not seen, saying in this case it no. is, but I'm just saying we've seen examples of subscription services for Uber drivers that are mortgaged to them sometimes isn't the exact best deal. So if it's a good deal. It's ripe for predatory rates. And sure. like, it's kind of like the payday loan business in a way, yeah. you know? So, but yeah. if, if the price is low enough and it is a tool, like maybe, maybe what's going to happen in London is that you're going to then, because they're going to be so identifiable, you'll just know. Yeah. And you'll be like, that's it, yeah. you know, and, and maybe it'll end up being a, a big success. I'm very interested in seeing what happens with it. Yeah, for sure. I think it's like definitely an idea that is worth testing out in the real world. Yeah. So I, yeah. So just a question we we often ask on this podcast, but mm-hmm. it's just what? Why should our readers care? Why do you? Why do you? Why do you, why do you choose to do this thing versus a, anything else? Anything else? And I've have had a long career and also have written about everything, yeah. but. Fundamentally, everything that we do comes down to our ability to move from point A to point B, Mm -hmm. whether it's people or packages. And so there's a fundamental question that I like to think about, which is like, is the freedom of movement or the ability to move from place to place a right or a privilege? Mm. And then there's all sorts of technology that either infringes upon that or unlocks that. Right. And so why not write about yeah, that? You know, yeah. I mean, it touches literally every part of our lives, whether it's trucking, the car you buy, which is a very emotional experience for a lot of people, yeah. transit, and the software behind it can either make it a better experience or a worse experience. Yeah. And so touching all of that is really interesting. It is a interesting to investors and builders and startup founders, but also to just everyday people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, you have to hear the analogy of to, to sort of bandwidth and like internet access versus moving physical things and people, right? And it's weirdly, we've forgotten that that was the predecessor for it. And now maybe our audience better understands like, oh, the data must flow or whatever. Yeah. The people, the everything must flow. The data must <laughs> flow. But guess what? Like you might have amazing backend and software and you can order your thing, but you cannot get your thing unless there is a physical truck to bring you there. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I suppose in the metaverse, you can get it delivered to you. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but you can't like enjoy that delicious cupcake that you were going to get delivered to you, you know, or whatever. Yeah. But uh, Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. <laughs> That's where another... Another conference. Yeah. Can't wait for that one. Thanks, Kirsten. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com and read all the others while you're there. Also, we've got some amazing events coming up, including TechCrunch Climate, and that's June 14th, and tickets are on sale now. Check out all the other TC podcasts as well, Bound, Equity, and Chain Reaction. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by me, TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. It's produced by Maggie Stamets. Henry Pickovit manages all the studio products here at TechCrunch with audio engineering and editing from Kel Keller and Maggie Stamets. 